Infirmary Media. People engage, it's time for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Hoop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick, Iron Maiden, GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we are back with a most excellent week experience battle, as I will be representing August 1972 alongside this week's other duelers. First off, dueling with August 1985, say hello to Man Crush. That's right, it's actually, it's the week experience, so it's August 18th. Through the 24th, I got a seven-day window of 1985, and 1985 is a juggernaut. It's going to be tough for you guys. I'm letting you know right now. It's coming. Also returning to the panel this week is the host of the Video Rangers podcast, Dueling with August 1992. Please welcome back to the show, Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger coming at you from the top of the aggro crag with August 16th through 22nd of 1992. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to make us face the music. So straight out of 15th century England, all rise for judges Diane Franklin and Kimberly Cates. Hello. Hello, sister. Nice to see you here. And nice to see you too. What have you been doing today? Oh, just trying to stay safe, not get COVID. I would say that's the most important part. Right? <laughs> I saw you with your masks, your golden mask. Yes, I have a golden mask and a golden, uh, golden gloves. That's the new thing for, for princesses. We're going to wear golden gloves instead of the plastic ones. <laughs> thanks for having me back on, by the way. Well, yes. Thanks for coming back on. Thanks for having us. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final Wild card round. All right, duelers, two heads are better than one. It's double the pleasure and triple the fun. So let's play more. Dueling decades. All right, who's who's doing the toss this time? Is it going to be Mike and me, or you and the toss this week will be between Man Crush and Mike Ranger. Okay, Mike, what do you want to be? The front of the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures video, or the uh, uh, DVD, or the back? Um, I will be on the front. All right. So you're the front and then Man Crush, you're on the back? Yep, I guess so. Oh. Okay, you're on the <laughs> I back. I haven't All won right, a so. toss in weeks, so let's see what happens here. Okay, ready? Here we go. And <gasps> I guess Man Crush is starting. Oh, shit. <laughs> Did not expect that. All right, Man Crush, you won the toss. You have control of the board. What category are we going with first for this week experience battle? Uh, you know what? Let's start off with TV. 
All right. Let's go there first. Start with the weakest. All right, let's go. August 18th, 1985. And here's a show that actually premiered a week prior to the week that I had on HBO. So we get the second episode of this hit series. The premiere is a bit bizarre, though, because, and this is probably a sign of the times. See, they actually snook a couple episodes of this into their programming in December of 1984. And I'm guessing it was like a pilot test. I just didn't think that cable ran like that, but this is 1984, 1985. So I suppose it's possible that that's why they did it. And they must not have believed in this show at all at the time because it premiered August 10th. And that premiere episode was slated at 1130 at night on a Saturday. I think HBO was probably a little apprehensive at the time because up until this point, all the cable networks had failed to create a hit comedy series. But that all changes right here. Because this is kind of a pivotal change for HBO programming. This HBO sitcom right here, it starred Bo Beecraft's favorite designing woman, Delta Burke, the infamous Donald Gibb, O.J. Simpson. And O.J. Simpson even got Al Cowling's a gig on this. John Matuzic. You had uh, John Kaser. Amazing. And our very own Princess Judge, Kimberly Cates, appeared on this show in an episode. Kim, can you tell us? what you played, and what you remember about HBO's First and Ten. Oh, First and Ten. Yes, I remember what I played. I played a very sexy kind of girl who jumped out of a cake um, dancer. And I had a scene with John Kasker. I I thought I did that after Bill and Ted's, though. Uh, I I don't know when exactly your episode was. You weren't in the premiere, but you were in the show. I was in it, yeah, later on. yeah, I thought I did it after Bill and Ted's, but yes, it was, uh, I, I remember, um, yeah, it was fun. I just, uh, I don't remember a lot with it, except for I remember that John Kasker and we had a fun dancing scene and I was the girl that jumped out of the cake. And I remember meeting, I think I met OJ and I think I met, oh gosh, the wow. lead actor who played the football player. He was a, the quarterback and he was. Um, oh, at, when you were on the show, maybe, was it Christopher Maloney then? No. Yeah, the quarterback changed on first and ten every season. Every year. Which was kind of weird because every year they won the Super Bowl, but then they changed their quarterback. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so yes, so I remember I remember doing the show and I remember it was just a lot of fun and it was one of the first things that I did. So that's all I remember. It's like I just remember playing a girl jumping out of a cake. <laughs> all right, well, the show, if anybody did know, the show actually parodied professional football with the fictitious California Bulls. It would actually, it would last for seven seasons. They would get nominated for multiple ACE awards. And they would actually use footage from the now defunct USFL to use during the series. So a matter of fact, if you head over to Prime and you play episode two that I'm talking about right now, you'll see the LA Express on the field towards the end of the episode. It's not actually the California Bulls. Uh, first and 10... What was cool about it is they would tackle some really progressive stuff for television at the time, uh, which the major TV networks couldn't do. You had Delta Burke's character. She won the team in a divorce battle after she finds her husband in bed with the team's tight end, which (laughs) you didn't see anywhere. And that actually happened. Then there was lots of nudity in the show. You had like line. What was the linebacker? There was like a limp dicked linebacker. And they talked about (laughs) him through the whole series. I forgot which guy it was. They had that. You had the uh, the kicker would get deported. I mean, the show did everything at the time. But I think the version on Prime, if you're going to go watch it, 
It is the horrible syndicated version, which everything's cut out and there's an awful laugh track on it. So just be aware if you're going to see that. But this right here, this is episode two of First and Ten, August 18th, 1985, with the episode called The Opener. And finally, a successful HBO original comedy. And since then, they've had plenty. So that's my first pick. Wow. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the television round? Oh, well, let me tell you, Mark, it's something very exciting because on August 16th, 1992, the television drama Secret Service debuted on NBC and ended 21 episodes later on November 17th, 1993. The show was hosted by President Gerald Ford's youngest son, Stephen Ford. The show was a reenactment of Secret Service cases. I found an article in the Arts and Entertainment section of the Orlando Sentinel by Greg Dawson that called the series watered-down reality, and said that the scenes inside the Secret Service are less than riveting. Each episode had two stories over the course of an hour. This article went on to complain about the abundance of reality TV shows from Cops to Rescue 911 and the many more slated to appear in the fall. The article also says that the Secret Service is proof that reality programming may finally mercifully be reaching the end of its TV shelf life. So I'm glad he was able to predict history. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what do you have, 1992? I have 1992, and apparently at that time there was too many reality TV shows. Yeah, what? I don't know. Wow. That was like where it kicked. Wait, when did Real World start? Wasn't that 92? Right around there, right? Yeah. <laughs> that guy's way off, man. Way <laughs> off. God. All right, so for my television offerings, uh, we're going to go to the Los Angeles Times. Uh, August 22nd, 1972, in a headline that reads, A Lady Calling the Shots at NBC. The article reads, when word got around that NBC's Big Burbank plant last week led that Lynn Bolin had been appointed director of daytime programming for the network. A producer who was male and one of the daytime shows whom Lynn had never met before burst into her office and said, thank God they finally got a lady at last to call the shots on women's programming. Lynn added with a smile, thank God they're finally taking a woman seriously at last. So this is the first female vice president of a network television station, Lynn Bolin. She was promoted by NBC. Uh, she originally started her career working in commercials, producing documentaries uh, about Twiggy and Crisis in America and Martin Luther King. Uh, she then went on to NBC where she took over daytime television. She expanded the formats for Days of Our Lives and Another World, changed those to hour-long running formats, expanded both of those shows and attracted new viewers and helped boost NBC to the number one ratings. Uh, she did have a few setbacks where she canceled Jeopardy. And we've talked about that on this show a few times. Of course, that was brought back. Uh, and a few other game shows she stumbled with. But everything else on the daytime programming was a complete success for Lynn Bolin. Uh, she unfortunately passed away in 2018, but leaves a lasting legacy on TV that we see to this day. So that's my pick for the television round. I have the first female vice president of a major TV network. And that was uh, when she was promoted, August 22nd, 1972. That's impressive. All right, so let's kick it down to our celebrity guest judges, Diane Franklin and Kimberly Cates, for the ruling on the television round. All right, I'll go for this one. Um, okay, so my feeling is, and you can tell me what your thoughts are, uh, my uh, princess sister. Um, okay, so at first, uh, you know, um, 
I'm sorry, Mike, you're just out. <laughs> Mike, you're out. Well, you know. Okay, okay, let's just get to the point. Uh, He's I like, thought, mm. um, I thought um, Man Crush, I actually, you know, I was going to go for Man Crush because I, I, I really liked, you know, the idea of, you know, first intent and like starting to, you know, have you were in the show and um, I like the detail that you had on that information, but um, uh, I'm going, I'm going to vote for Mark. Uh, I really like, obviously, the idea of Lynn Bolin was this major female person who was able to produce her. Was she a producer or was she a, a development or... Well, she did a Network. little bit of everything. She started in commercials and then went into production and then ended up becoming the vice president of daytime. Okay, vice president of daytime. All right, so especially during that time, I have to give him uh, credit for finding that piece of information because you got to uh, back that. I don't know. I, I'm voting for Mark because I really feel that uh, he found a really wonderful, interesting piece of history that promotes uh, women empowerment and also women uh, taking control and being able to do um, a man's job in a, in a decade, perhaps where that wasn't something that was that common. All right. What's your thoughts? Uh, uh, my thoughts are so, okay, Mark, go back. What was the show that she promoted? Cause you're talking, we're talking about individual shows. We're not talking about a, a time in history. Correct. Uh, it can be either or. Uh, she worked oh, on I a see. she worked on a number of shows earlier in her career. Mm -hmm. She did some documentary series about Martin Luther King and uh, the actress Twiggy, and then she went on and really what she was known for was expanding the daytime format, especially for the soap operas, to an hour long format. And of mm -hmm. course, we know how the soap operas all took off in the late seventies and the eighties, and a lot of it was responsible because of those decisions she made as the head of daytime. Mm -hmm. and I was one of those. And, and Mike, your show was about your show was about Reagan. Um, no, mine was uh, about the Secret Service, and it's okay that you don't remember it because I don't either, and I'm <laughs> pretty sure nobody else does. <laughs> I think your show was really relevant and so forth, but I don't think that you presented it like in a way that I really it really impinged on me. Um, Man Crush, he presented his show in a very um, interesting way, and I like that he. You brought in like my, you know, weird, sexy character, whatever that I played briefly. I totally forget about. I know that was one of my first things I ever did, by the way. Um, and anyway, but I, I think that Mark, I agree with my sister because I think that Mark appealed to what's going on right now, appealed to the fact that it is. I mean, it's a tremendous thing that they NBC was the station. NBC promoted this woman. I mean, I wouldn't 100% say, oh, great, now we have people watching soap operas for an hour is necessarily <laughs> a great thing <laughs> because it's just like a lot of drama that we don't, but, you know, it does pull people away from their life. That is like whatever mundane. This is like this problem's worse than mine. Great. You know, who's having an affair today? Um, but <laughs> you know, that's what it's like. Um, but, you know, it. I have a lot of friends on soap operas and a lot of careers were started on soap operas. You know, a lot of really big careers, the people that I look up to started on soap operas. So I was on a soap opera. I almost got a couple of soap operas. I came close to being on General Hospital. I think I did some Days of Our Lives really early on when I was doing Bill and Ted's. Wow. When I was doing Bill and Ted's, I was doing Days of Our Lives. I was playing a high school student playing, you know, um, it was fun. It's good. And they were looking, I, was in, I was in Italy and they were looking for me to come on the show because they would just call me randomly. There was like no set schedule. Mm -hmm. And so they would call me like, oh, you know, and I'm like, sorry, I'm in Italy now. <laughs> I'm doing a movie. I can't come on your show. But um, 
anyway, it was, I do, I, I, I'm, I'm with you, sister. I'm with Mark because I do like, uh, I do like NBC being so progressive on pushing a woman to the, you know, and I'm glad she got credit for these things as well. Cause I'm surprised that a man didn't take credit for her work. Yeah. Mark, what decade was that again? Was that the, that was 1972. 70s. Okay. Yeah, that's a deep dig. Yeah. Mark, can you get can you get two points for that from each of us? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. Trust me, I wish I could. But but Mark, you know, you also got a kiss ass point. So. Oh well, there we go. Wow. <laughs> they know about the pandering. Oh wow. yeah, I, I know. Hey, I I deal with people in the business all the time. I'm familiar with sycophant obsequious behavior. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I pick up one point for the first round, but I do take control of the board and I get to select our next category. You know what? I think we're going to do some news. We'll go to the news round for the second round. Oh, I thought you said nudes. (laughs) (laughs) If you really want, but trust me, probably (laughs) news is the way to go with me. Yeah, we're gonna. I was looking through. I actually stumbled upon this news story completely by accident, and I read the article, and I'm like, "This kind of sounds familiar." Why does it sound familiar? So I went to the Daily News, New York, New York, August 23rd, 1972, and a headline that reads, Pair holds eight hostage in Brooklyn Bank, negotiate with FBI for an Algeria flight. A heavily armed homosexual and his accomplice, who stuck up a Brooklyn bank yesterday afternoon and held eight hostages, negotiated with the FBI early today for a plane to fly them from Kennedy Airport to Algeria. The gunman took over the branch earlier in the day and obtained the release of another homosexual, Ernest Aaron, from the psychiatric ward of Kings County Hospital. I know, I know. John Wadowitz, 27-year-old Vietnam veteran. Yes, of course, this is the story that inspired the movie Dog Day Afternoon, where John Wadowitz broke into the bank. He robbed a bank to get money for his lover's sex change operation. Great movie. That's love. It is an absolutely fantastic (laughs) movie and a more fascinating story if you look deep into who John Wadowitz was as a person and as kind of a character, he was very much an eccentric. Uh, they orig- they recently made a documentary on him, um, and it covers a lot of what the movie didn't cover. But that's what I'm bringing for my news story. It is the original bank robbery from John Wadowitz. I had no idea that was a true story. Yeah, that's amazing. That's incredible. Good research. I was wondering how they knew they were homosexuals. Like, did they tell them that <laughs> when they were asking... Well, he was robbing the bank to pay for it. (laughs) I guess if he asked directly, but how else would they know? Uh, Well, remember, remember in the actual movie, he was trying to get money for his um, operation. Right. And that's, that's what really had happened in real life. His lover, Ernest Aaron, better known by his name after he changed it and became a woman, was Elizabeth Eden. Uh, Elizabeth Eden, unfortunately, died of AIDS complications uh, in 1987 at the age of 41, but the word is that the money for the sex change operation actually came from selling the movie rights. Wow, that's fascinating. That's a really, that's a really nice tagline to that whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so she finally, she finally got to become who she wanted to. She finally did. Yes, absolutely. Yes. After her I, boyfriend robbed a bank. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's got that, it. That's got an it. Amazing that's story. Love. That is, and that is an insane story. It is. It absolutely is. But you know what? It gave us Dog Day Afternoon, which is you know just one of the best Pacino movies out there. Oh yeah. 
Absolutely. All right, so let's toss it over to Mike Ranger for the news round. Well, I'll tell you, Mark, I'm even more excited about this one because this is literally the only pick that I have any confidence in this evening. (laughs) Uh, So on August 18th, 1992, Larry Bird retired after 13 years with the Boston Celtics. The Hick from Salt Lick was the sixth overall pick in the 1978 draft, and number 33 was a three-time NBA champion, two-time finals MVP, three-time MVP, 12-time All-Star, Rookie of the Year. It's Larry Legend. Larry Bird retires. End of an era. And then Jordan finally gets to win. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's so crazy. No, I don't think a lot of people put that together, that once he left, right. you know, yeah. Jordan really takes over. Pretty much, they man. Were Larry was an even... Even with the back injury, he was still amazing. He was still putting up 20 points. I got to check myself. The Pistons were also dominant. So there were other teams, yeah. but he was And, a, and a little player. gentleman by the name of Irvin Magic Johnson. He was kind of there during that time. Can't forget about him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's all right. Yeah. yeah, he's all right, too, I guess. Well, he did have he's a Magic good. Johnson. Well, actually, well, he did get rid of AIDS somehow, like which is amazing. It's because it's Cause magic. He, it was crazy. I remember when that story came out when I was in eighth grade. We were, everyone was devastated. And that guy's healthier than all of us now. Yeah. It's crazy. Thank he God. owns part of the Dodgers. It's it's nuts. That's a good one, man. It's a good but one. it's the I'm end sure of an that, era. I'm sure he used a lot of um, he used a, a lot of Western and oh, Eastern treatments to probably get rid of it out of his blood. There are ways of doing it and get rid of but anyway, I don't want to go there. Yeah, I was pre-med, <laughs> by the way, I was pre-med in school, just as like an FYI. Nice. Oh, all right. Wow. I'm still fascinated by med. I was like, I was wondering where she's going with this. Like, oh, you can no, no, no. I do. Blood. I do a lot of medical stuff. I work with a lot of animals still. It's like sort of my side thing that I just do is a rescue stuff. And I work with a lot of animals with diseases and just a thing that I love to do. Nice. So, yeah, no, there's, there's nothing rewarding other than just seeing an animal, you know, better that's the worst thing in the world yeah sick animals oh my god yeah like any movie hard time communicating you know yeah i mean that's the worst thing like if they put that in hollywood they put like john wick i love john wick spoiler when they kill his dog they kill his puppy yeah in the beginning that's so wrong because it's the worst thing ever animals animals and children their innocence and you just can't stand it and it's we've become so desensitized in movies to see people die but it's so horrific to see an animal die which is why it's still effective um but yeah but you know but then we eat meat so it's like come on guys you know (laughs) but they don't live in my house (laughs) right so yeah it's like it's a weird thing but anyway um yeah so but it's amazing that magic johnson is um you know free of any kind of virus. Uh, yeah, it's like he never had it. It's like he never had anything. Like when you, yeah. I mean, for people that grew up through that era and we know about it and we saw it all over the news and whatnot, this isn't even Mike's story, but like, it's such a sidebar. But the fact that it's never talked about anymore, that yes. he's just better, you know, he's, it's all gone. And that was a huge, huge thing yeah. in the early nineties when that happened. Well, imagine how much money he could make if he actually wrote a book on what he did to get rid of it. That was yeah. that's true. Or patent it. Yeah. Or something. Or have somebody, he doesn't want to yeah. because whatever he did, you know, it obviously would interfere with um, a lot of really expensive medications. Didn't yeah. he just like inject himself with Clorox? No. No. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> you can't say stuff like that. But you, but he probably did ozone therapy. I mean, ozone therapy has been around forever. Nicholas, Nikola Tesla invented it. So, right. 
Um, it's it's actually pretty effective. I've, I've actually done it in my blood and I have an ozone machine. Um, it does give you a tremendous amount of energy. I'm like, oh. what is that? What? <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking. What is ozone, ozone? therapy? You know, ozone is just, uh, it's an extra molecule of, of oxygen. Right. And they could literally take your blood out and then they add some air to the blood in the bag. They add a certain kind of like ozone air into the bag. Then they re they put the blood back into your body, your own blood. It's all done like in the office, like just right there. Takes about an hour to do. They take your blood out, and um, anyway, just puts more oxygen in your blood. And you know, oxygen kills pretty much everything. It kills viruses. It kills bacteria. It kills a lot of different things. And it's called, you know, it's an alternative therapy, um, but alternative medicine. But it is extremely effective effective at killing things. They use ozone machines to sterilize things in right. hospitals yeah. and so forth. Um, so it's that, but it's just using it in your blood. So. I'm not going to get political here, but you know, there is the concept of cleaning your blood is a concept that is not it just the guy who said it didn't say it correctly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Clorox doesn't work. Mark, no, Mike, do not use Mike anything like that. That is just horrendously stupid. <laughs> All right, man crush. What do you have for the news round? All right. So since you both brought, well, yours is semi a downer and, I mean, really, Larry Bird retiring is. It's not like he debuted. He's gone now. He's gone. NBA has changed, so I'm going to change it. August 22nd, 1985. There's always a ton of stories when we do the news round about, like, politics. Basically, anything Joe Finley would bring as a downer (laughs) news story. Mark knows what I'm talking about. I decided to take the high road here because I'm sure we're all burnt out with the constant barrage of politics, everything that we're hearing nowadays. This is a feel-good news story. And it's about the largest lottery prize in North American history at the time. All right. So it's at the time, $41 million, which is about $100 million in 2020. That was the largest at the time in August of 1985. Now, by comparison, the largest jackpot ever now was in 2016. And that was the Powerball is $1.6 billion. Oh, my God. So it's it's insane where, where we've gone. But they sold... 37 million tickets for this lottery at the time it was the biggest thing around. Everyone wanted to get in. It was a New York state lottery. So we had three lucky winners. All right. Somebody from Brooklyn, somebody from Albany and Kelso Manuel Garcet and his 20 immigrant coworkers at a printing press manufacturer in Mount Vernon, New York. Garcet would buy the ticket. He agreed to split the winnings with 20 coworkers and they all pulled in $1 each. Garcet and all 20 of his colleagues, they were all naturalized U.S. citizens. Nobody was a citizen of the United States. So this is like living the dream for real. Wow. They they go, they win, all right? So since it was split three ways, the assembly line workers from the name of the company was George Hanshow Company, which I'm sure changed after that because all those guys who were working on the assembly line, <laughs> I'm sure they worked there for a little bit, but they probably left. They, they received 13 million $666,667, which is kind of a weird amount, but they agreed to split that up over 20 years. So cut 21 ways that would pay these guys roughly $25,000 a year, $24,792 a year. And that amount would equal the amount that they made working overtime at the assembly plant that they all worked at. So they basically like just up their lie. They doubled their lives by doing this. Garcet's wife, Marta, she went on to say this because Garcet didn't even speak English. All right. So his wife was on the news and she said, you know, we work really hard. 
but we give thanks to America. This is a beautiful country. And then the other guy, one of the other guys that won, John Ming, he said it's like an American dream. And that's what it is. You know, you come to this country and you want to make it big. And here it is. It happened overnight. And that's these 21 guys that worked in a printing assembly plant that all just chipped in a dollar each. And they won the biggest lotto up to this time. I mean, now we look at the $1.6 billion. It's much different. But in 1985, this $41 million winnings, this was huge. It was national news. So that's what I got. That's a great story. Wow. Yes, that's no downers story. Um, uh, now, how am I supposed to? How are we supposed to judge the news story? Like, what's the best thing that we like? I mean, because this is—you guys all have great stories, by the way. I cannot. It's like I wanted, like, I because I, I, I here's the thing: is I really love to like find what's great out of things because then you could, you know, bring it into your own life. Like, I don't like to criticize things so much, so I'm like probably not perfect for the show because I don't like to like I like to go, oh, this is great, this is great, and like then you can have it in your repertoire in your brain. But I think that I like the Larry Bird story the most. Oh, thank God, because this is really the only good thing I got. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you why because he did something great. You know, the guy was a great man. The bank robbery thing, it's a great story, but he didn't, you know, they didn't do anything great. They weren't doing something for humanity. Right. Winning a lotto is fantastic. But again, I like people to work. I like people to be productive. This is a cool thing that happened to them. But this guy, Larry Bird, he did something outstanding. He did something that we all know his name. And I think that, you know, he's, he's a great, one of the greatest players around. And so I think that I have to go with the Larry Bird story because I think that he did such remarkable things in his life that we have to, you know, we have to give him kudos for that. That's my feeling. And he was the best rapper in that Converse commercial. Absolutely. <laughs> he, rapped, he rapped way better than everybody. I don't know that, but I, I think that, you know, he did great things and that, you know, he made like such an imprint in basketball and, um, and I know that he encouraged a lot of a lot of guys to play ball, and that's playing ball and playing sports is just the most amazing thing people can do. It's a very uplifting thing. It's more uplifting than you know making money and all of that sort of thing. It's like playing sports, you learn so much about life. So yeah, I got to go with the sports guy. Nice, Diane. Go ahead, Diane. Sorry, Diane. <laughs> Diane I'm so just overruled. I overruled Diane. I'm sorry, Diane. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I just wanted to say that I, I uh, actually, um, you know, but all those three stories were quite wonderful and I learned so much. And, uh, you know, uh, I just, I had no idea Dog Day Afternoon was, was uh, from a true story. And my gosh, what a lovely story um, about the lottery. Um, but I do agree that, um, you know, Larry Bird is an amazing, you know, player and role model. And uh, I love basketball. So I second you, dear sister. About Thank that. you, sister. Well, there you go, Mike Ranger. You win that round, you pick up a point, but more importantly, you take control of the board, get to select our next category. Where are we going? Well, it's a very good question because I, you know, and to be honest with you, I haven't quite decided because it's all terrible. <laughs> so, um, that's why we call it the weak experience. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go with hot products. Yeah. Um, on August 19th, 1992, on VHS and Laserdisc, the Don Bluth animated picture Rock-A-Doodle hit video stores across the country, with some stores selling it for as low as $19.99 and also receiving a $5 coupon for whisk laundry detergent with the purchase. The action animated musical was loosely based off the 1910 comedy play Chancellor, 
and was such a commercial failure in theaters, it forced Don Bluth's studio into liquidation half a year after its release. Now, what's important here is not so much that this movie's terrible, but that my mother brought it home for my younger brothers, and I had to fucking watch that thing at least 30 times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Not a fucking trip to Florida. Did we not go down the I-95 counting Waffle Houses and watching this fucking movie? Oh. That's great. I don't know what this is. I'm sorry for you. It's rock What is this about? I don't even remember this movie. Well, I actually think that Bo likes this movie. Oh, of course. He likes Cop and a Half. Oh, well, who doesn't? I mean, Burt Reynolds. And you right? got Whisk, right? You got Whisk. Hey, and I mean, you got the coupon. Think about that, you know? Yeah. Hey, kids, watch this video. I'm going to do some laundry, maybe lean up during the driver, you know, maybe catch a spin cycle. Oh, God. Does that even work, please? I don't know. That's what they told me in Great Outdoors. <laughs> if it's in a John Candy movie, it's true. I know. It's funny. It's a funny concept. All right, guys. So for my hot product, uh, I went to the Des Moines Tribute, August 23rd, 1972, and I found yet another one of these review sections in the newspaper where they talk about new household products. Uh, It's the member of the Tribune's women's page staff. They've been reviewing new products that they've been finding in the grocery stores. So one that they point out here is a a new release of Square Baloney, which I guess is the first time to hit the stores. But uh, the (laughs) products I went with were a pair of new cereals. The article reads, General Mills has released two new cereals that are the Berries. Baron Von Redberry is a raspberry-flavored oat cereal with raspberry marshmallow bits. Or there is Sir Grapefellow, a grape-flavored cereal with grapey marshmallows. Both of these uh, cereals were released by General Mills as kind of compliments to each other. Because, of course, if you know General Mills cereals and the storylines, for some reason they always have competing rivalry cereal characters that are fighting each other. And Sir Grapefellow and Baron Von Redberry were no exception to this. Now, they both were World War I fighter pilots. Oh, right. I remember that. Who, for <laughs> some true. reason, endorsed cereal. So you had Sir Grapefellow, of course, which is, it is a grape-flavored oat cereal plus sweet grape star bits. Uh, the star bits are actually marshmallows, very similar to what you would find in Lucky Charms. So you had these two competing cereals, Grape and Berry. They were around for a while. They were part of the Marshmallow Madness cereal of family from General Mills, which, of course, includes Lucky Charms, Boo Berry, Dino Pebbles, and the Bill and Ted's Excellent Cereal Adventure cereal. So oh, my God. It's wow. All, all in the amazing. same family. I love I, I love the marshmallow cereal as a kid. Oh, my goodness. It's like all that sugar was so divine. It's funny you say that because I was reading the ingredients list for both of these cereals and, you know, they're relatively the exact same other than raspberry versus grape, but it lists off the first 10 ingredients and the number one ingredient in this cereal is sugar. So, you know, it's good. You know, it's good. And you know that it's like the worst thing to eat before school because then you crash like your first, you know, your first class is you're crashing. Right. So, yeah, it's like it's brilliant. Those minds that make that (laughs) stuff. God. (laughs) So that's what I got from my hot products. More sugary great breakfast cereal introduced to us in 1972. Sugar wow. plus sugar. Yeah. Man Crush, what do you have for the hot products round? Sweet. So is your hot product diabetes? Yeah, it could have been, yes. Oh, yeah. Juvenile I just diabetes. Wanted to check. All right. Juvenile. Juvenile diabetes. Juvenile diabetes. 1972. That's what they were doing. 
right, so August 18th, 1985. This one's near and dear to my heart. Matter of fact, had I not received this from my parents, I honestly don't think I'd be on this call today. Honestly, the day they brought home the Commodore 128, it changed my life forever. For real. They previously brought home, it was an IBM compatible Olympia computer and nobody knew how to use it. This is like 1986. Nobody knew how to use it. They returned it. And I'm pretty sure my mom bought that shit from Home Shopping Network. Came in a box. They put it on the dining room table and it just sat there for like a week. They sent it out. And I was completely bummed that they sent it out. I was eight years old at the time. I wanted a computer so bad. Uh, my friends were get, starting to get computers, home computers. And a month later, they brought home the Commodore 128. And they put that thing right in my room. And I have to say that somewhere around like, it was probably late 1986 when I got this and I've been using computers ever since that date. So thank you, mom and dad. They gave me a career out of this Commodore 128. I had the Commodore right up till probably about 1990. Then I got my first IBM 386, but that's another story. So they announced the Commodore 128 in May of 1985, but they didn't actually start selling them until August 18th. The, uh, the 128 went on sale for $849 that included the CPU, a 13-inch color display, which is awesome, a five-and-a-quarter double-sided floppy disk. Do you guys remember those? They actually flopped. Yeah, you had to flip them. Yeah, you could flip them. You could... That's expensive, isn't it? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, today, that's about $2,000 in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, at, but it also did come with an Epson dot matrix printer. So, you got like a whole package oh, of this thing. Nice. I, and I have no doubt, and everyone listens to this show knows that my parents were notoriously cheap. I have no doubt that this shit fell off the back of a truck because it just <laughs> showed up one day. There was no talk of it. Oh it was just like, here are boxes, Commodore boxes. Um, but anyways, this computer, it was technically, the it had double the RAM of the Commodore 64, hence is why they called it the 128. But that said, this is basically a glorified Commodore 64, which is the most sold computer in the world ever. They sold like 20 million units or something. I didn't even know Commodore was like that popular. Um, oh yeah. In the eighties, it were, it was oh, yeah. huge. Matter of fact, this particular that model, the one twenty eight. better off dead came out that, that uh, yeah. computer. I mean, that, that it did in 1985. That's, that's right. You should know that. And uh, this one, it got discontinued in 1989, but not before it sold 5 million units worldwide. Wow. This is probably one of the main reasons I didn't get an NES until 1990 because the Commodore had a ton of 8-bit games and I was totally fine with it. But again, this one was close to me, so I didn't go digging anymore once I started to find the ads and I saw that the Commodore 128 came out. I was like, this is mine. This is my hot product. So whether I win the round or not, it's an important product. I think this is a pretty easy one. Diane, what do you think? I think I absolutely have. You and I are reading each other's minds. You, I'm going to have to say it's the winner is Man Crush for this. Yes, we both love the idea of a computer. Yes, I love it. Bill and Ted's uh, relative cereal is very exciting. And um, I feel bad for your whisk experience uh, that your mother put you through, Mike. Um, it's sad and tragic. Uh, but, you know, it's, I have to say computers are with us today. It's amazing. You know, it's great to remember when they started and how how far they've come, you know? And oh, yeah. I, I, remember my, I remember my first computer. My first computer was in 1997. And wow. it was... A computer. Oh my gosh! It was. Was it a four eighty six? That's nineteen eighty seven. You know who got it for me for Christmas? Who? 
some of you guys might know, um, Dean Deplin, who was my boyfriend at the time, did Independence Day. And so he got me a computer for my Christmas present, which was awesome. What a nice a, gift. Wow. Yeah, it was a nice gift. I think I had, I think I had inherited an old one before that. But so he gave me my first like real computer. Um, it starts with a C. What is it? It was a big compact. brand. Compact. Was it? Compact. 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 Yeah. Compact. Yep. Anyway, um, so he got me my first computer and I just was, it was the most exciting thing ever was like to be able to write. And I don't know, I just loved it. It was just so much better than anything that, you know, I had to hand me down before. So computer all the way, it changed our lives, didn't it? Did that come with an AOL disc? Yes. It came with all sorts of weird (laughs) stuff. You know, it was like, it was amazing to like, I think I saved a lot of stuff. I saved you know, I'm like my grandma, I save all these old little things that like I open the drawer. I'm like, oh gosh, this stuff looks so old now. I have like these old video games that you can only play on that compact. I don't even know what we'd ever do with them, but yes. Do you all remember when, uh, when electric typewriters came in? Because I remember that. Do you, does anyone remember that? I don't remember when they came in. I remember when they went out. Yeah, right. well, yeah. for sure. I remember that. I love typewriters. Don't you? I mean, I still, if I found typewriter, I'd be so excited right now. I don't know why. Just, I just love the concept of the typewriter. Just, it also feels like nobody's watching you. When you're <laughs> you know, like there's some sort of like anonymity with it. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about this last week with Richard Goodbye, where he wrote the original script for Assault of the Party Nerds on a typewriter while he was, was in college. Hoping. He started off writing scripts on a typewriter with cue cards. And that was 1987. Yeah. Oh. So, I mean, <laughs> you're talking, or 1988, whenever he started writing it. But that's crazy. Yeah. And they're all gone. Like you, yeah. Nobody uses a typewriter. They're gone. No. Yeah, I think I have one. I have one in my basement. I do have one. <laughs> I do. All right. Well, Man Crush, with that victory, you tie the game at one point apiece, but you take control of the board heading into our first two-point round. Where are we going? All right. Let's go to music. Let's finish up with movies. We have two actresses. Um, excuse me, princesses. So we should finish up with movies. But let's uh, let's go to music right here. And we got August 19th, 1985. And once again, the Internet is all over the place with a date for this one. But I was able to confirm this week. As a matter of fact, it was the last week of August, utilizing our friends over at newspapers.com. This is this artist's eighth studio album. And honestly, this was not something that I was really into back then. I was seven uh, and I had like a year later. I was eight and got, or no, 1987, my sister bought me Appetite for Destruction. So I wasn't listening to this, which, but now as an adult, I really dig it. And matter of fact, anytime I throw on Spotify, if I put on like an eighties radio or a playlist, this guy's songs always pop up, but this whole album, it was all a homage to sixties rock. All right. So this, this album would peak at number two on the billboard 200. It would only get edged out. By the Miami Vice soundtrack of all things. I mean, Jan Hammer was a real motherfucker in 1985. So he's a force to be reckoned with. He can, they, this guy cannot top him. But this album would be certified five times platinum and spent a total of 22 weeks within the top 10 of the Billboard Top 10 in 1985. It would have three singles, which would also find their way into the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100. You had Small Town, which would reach number six, Lonely All Night which would also reach number six and R O C K in the USA, which would climb all the way to number two, which is not too shabby for an album. That's only 41 minutes long and uh, rolling stone would peg scarecrow by John Mellencamp as the 95th greatest album of the eighties. 
which is not too bad for a week experience episode where we only get seven days to pick. Uh, but this album, like I said before, is an homage to the people he grew up listening to that shaped him. So he mentions in this album, he mentions James Brown, Young Rascals, Jackie Wilson, Mitch Ryder, Frankie Lyman, and Bobby Fuller, amongst others. And I don't know if you, anybody knows this, listen to the show. I'm sure some people do. But Bobby Fuller was the guy that performed I Fought the Law. And he died mysteriously. Like he, they just found him one day dead in his vehicle with a bunch of weird like hemorrhages all over his face and his torso and his his legs or whatever. They never knew what happened. They matter of fact, on his autopsy, it's checked off as like, you know, weird death, suicide with question marks. They don't know what happened. So it's very weird. But anyways, when John Mellencamp would go and he'd play in Fuller's hometown in Albuquerque, his family was so appreciative that he mentioned Bobby Fuller on his album that they gifted John Mellencamp the belt that he was wearing when they found his dead body. Whoa. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's kind of weird, yeah. but I, figured, I was like, ah, yeah, why not? I'll, I'll tell. It's crazy stuff, though. This is the classic album by John Mellencamp, Scarecrow, and that was released August 19th, 1985. Cool. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the music round? Oh, well, just nothing but more continued excitement, Mark. On August 18th, 1992, the Steve Vai created teen metal band Bad For Good released their one and only album, Refugee. While the album did hit number 39 on the Billboard Heat Seekers chart, it was deemed a flop by Interscope. The one and only single, 19, failed to chart, but the video played on MTV frequently. The members of the band were Thomas McRocklin on lead guitar, Zach Young on bass, Brooks Wackerman, younger brother of Frank Zappa drummer Chad Wackerman on drums, and Danny Cooksey on lead vocals. That's what? right. Budnick was the lead singer. Mr. Sam McKinney, whose first appearance on Different Strokes marks the beginning of the end of the series. He was the lead <laughs> singer of Bad for Good. Somebody wow. get the plastic sheets. The end. I did watch Oof. some of their videos. He's actually pretty yeah. good. The band's not bad. It's just a little weird. Wait, Steve Vai was in the band or he no, created no, the band? Steve Vai um, discovered like one of the kids and then ended up producing this album and putting this band together. Oh, and okay. all the kids are actually, they're really talented. It's just that they're, you know, it's kind of like that Hanson thing where it's like, yeah, they can play, but I don't want to listen to this. Right. Did Mr. Drummond finance this? <laughs> No, Mr. Drummond, unfortunately, was doing what he normally does, and uh, where he doesn't supervise his children, you know, and they get kidnapped or get caught up in a Did bank Did they record this in the bike, bike shop? shop. <laughs> yeah. They tried to finance the album through the bike shop. Oh, yes, uh, Mr. Horton terrible. was executive producer on this. <laughs> and what was the band called again? Bad for Good. Bad for Good. Okay. Yes. All right. So we'll go over to my music selection, which... Could be bad or could be good, depending on the way you look at it. Because this song is definitely memorable. It was the 12th best song of 1972, and it only reached the top of the Billboard charts and held on to that number one position for one week only. Oddly enough, it just happens to be the week I have, August 20th through the 26th of 1972. And it's by the band Looking Glass. It's the song Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. Everybody knows this. It was one of the most requested songs by radio DJs in all of 1972. And if you were born in the early 70s and your name is Brandy, chances are you were named after this song. The name Brandy was the 353rd most popular name in the United States. 
1972, it jumped to 140th. And by 1973, the first full year after the song was released, it was the 82nd most popular name in the United States. That's, that's very funny. So wow. the writer of the song and frontman Elliot Laurie did an interview uh, not too long ago where he talked about the inspiration behind the song. Uh, there's been a lot of conspiracy theories behind this. Who Brandy is as a woman? Who was she as a character? Of course, the song itself is kind of like an old sea shanty who tells of a barmaid who is in love with somebody. But his one true love is not Brandy. It is the sea. And he just can't be with her as he ships off back to sea. So there's been some speculation that it is about a New Jersey woman who kind of had an affair with a a sailor. And there's like this big tombstone and monument to her. That is not true. It was actually about a high school girlfriend of his he had whose name was Randy. But he didn't (laughs) think that singing a love song about Randy was going to fly too well. Much like when Kiss wrote the song Beth, it was about his girlfriend Becky. And he didn't think Beck would be a great love song. Because who are you singing about, Jeff Beck? Well, he didn't want to sing a song about Randy, so he changed the R to a B, and we get Brandy. Uh, And this was just an amazing song. I love that song. It really is. Uh, Paul Stanley of Kiss, who I actually just mentioned, wrote that Brandy actually helped him write the song Hard Luck Woman. And uh, Barry Manilow's song, Mandy, very similar to Brandy, was actually originally written and released as Brandy. But then when Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass came out and was such a huge hit, he changed the name of the song to Mandy. Oh my, that's great. So, I mean, that totally destroys everything I've learned from Can't Hardly Wait about the Barry Manilow song. (laughs) It was originally Brandy and not Mandy, so that's what I got from my music round. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, hit the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. How does that go? It goes, Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. You don't know it? Because, no, in my head, I just keep singing Mandy. You're a fine girl. You make, I don't know, what the words are. Several octaves above my voice range. But that's my music pick. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, hitting the number one spot on the week of August 20th through 26th, 1972. But that's hard. And what was your John Mellon cap song was what? Uh, actually, I had the whole album. I had these. I actually came with a debut, not just uh, one week where it hit number one like Mark did. I came with a whole debut of an album. It's uh, John Mellencamp's Scarecrow that actually had three great songs on it. Actually, the whole album is pretty good. But uh, Small Town, Lonely Old Night, and R.O.C.K. in the USA. Yeah, R.O.C.K. in the USA. That's a big song. Yeah. That's a good song. I don't know. This is a hard one, isn't it, Diane? Most difficult. Most difficult. Yes. Um, well, I think. Um, why don't you pick it for you? And I'll, I'll follow up this time. Although I, I could. I have an idea. Okay, so John Mellencamp had R.O.C.K. in the USA. What were the other songs on the album? Small Town. How's that one go? I grew up in a small town. Come on. You know that song. Everybody knows that song. <laughs> I know that song. I and then uh, Lonely Old Night. Lonely Old Night is it's one of those songs when you, you just see the title, you don't know it. But when the song's on, yeah. you're like, it, oh, It's yeah, way more song. upbeat than you would think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my goodness. Ugh. Well, the John Mellencamp is like, I, I love the Brandy song and I love Looking Glass, but 
because it was a compilation because you're you're presenting more than one song and you're presenting like this whole throwback to the 60s and the freaking belt i mean the belt is the thing that did it in <laughs> the belt of the dead guy i mean how can you get around that isn't that wild like they came up to him and they were super excited like he actually said his actual words was it was like he had given them 60 million dollars he said that's how excited they were and they were they just presented him with this belt that he wore when they found his body cuz he sold the belt on eBay and got 60 million dollars <laughs> wow well anyway um i i'm going to have to say with the john mellencamp um because his songs obviously they uh, those songs resonated with me and i know those songs so well and i still would sing them and you know the um roc in the usa is just like a really upbeat song and a happy song and like it really gets people going so oh then, kimberly why not brandy who is i love them both brandy and then it could have been mandy <laughs> too confusing it's like there's too many <laughs> variations it's like make your mind up <laughs> Mandy, Brandy, Randy, come on. I'm like, I'm fascinated with this story, though. This is like, you know, now my mind is blown with Randy. I can never hear it. I'm going to hear Brandy in my head. And, oh, I don't know. This is, I'm. it's hard. I, I actually would go with Mark, you know, but... You know, um, it's since it's your vote, I'm going to I'll say man crush, too. But boy, can I I want to tell you, you really made it hard for us, Mark. I try. Mark. Yes, I love I love the song, Brandy. I absolutely love it. I'm going with the person who is like representing the whole album because there's so much on it. There's so much creativity on it. There's a lot of different songs that I'll probably listen like, OK, that, you know, there's a lot of meaningful things with the John Mellencamp. There's a you got a one hit wonder versus a whole album. So I'm going to have to go with the the whole compilation of the album, even though I do love the song Brandy. Sorry, Mike. I hate to compare. I really hate to compare. <laughs> this is the part that I hate because I just, I love the artistic creativity of everything. So this one's tough. I'm sorry. It's like, I'm sorry, Brandy creators. You guys did a great job too. But nobody gave you a belt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But nobody gave you a belt that they died in. It's like, you didn't go throw back to all these great legends, which I also love. Yes, homage to the 60s also, right? Homage to all those great legends is also, it's hard to get around. And I'm sure John Mellencamp, like, you know, this was part of like the cell thing for the whole, the whole, as I say, movie, the cell for the whole album is like, it's a throwback to all this. And it's like, oh, it makes it cooler. And it does make it cooler. (laughs) So, yeah. And it was also about like believing in yourself and like corporate greed. There was all this stuff that went into the songs that he wrote about on the album. So they sound really upbeat, but if you dig into the lyrics on them, some of them are about some dark things, kind of like Born in the USA. Like a lot of people think that's like a really positive song and you read read the lyrics. Eh, it's not that as positive as you think it is. No, so not at all. It's a mix. I'm going to go listen to these lyrics now since it's so easy just to look up the lyrics online. It's just... Oh, yeah. You don't need the cassette anymore to like open up 12 times. <laughs> you know? Read the print real small in the liner notes. I'll horrible. just say, Alexa, read me the lyrics of <laughs> John Mellencamp's. Oh, God, she's talking to me right now. Alexa, no, stop. <laughs> she's literally talking to me right now. She can hear everything. It scares me. Doesn't that, did you ever think about that? That thing listens to you all day, just waiting for you to say her name. Waiting, and also she can hear me even if I whisper. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like my wife. She's exactly like the <laughs> Well, what? Anyway. I'll be getting a text any minute. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> By the way, do you know that Alexa has a, a feature that I found? Because I had this weird thing come on a couple, like a month or two ago. I was talking really creatively to somebody. And then the next day, Alexa comes on and says, she wants, she has a beta program for an AI and she wants to converse with me, which was kind of interesting. So I conversed with her. She mostly talked about sports. And I think it's his beta program. Now, when you talk to her, you can say, Alexa, let's talk trash about, so there's somebody that's a trash talk and it's all about sports trash talk. Have you guys done that with her before? No. Yeah. Alexa has a sports trash talk and she'll tell you any trash talk that people say about whatever trash talk is. Um, but yeah, she'll tell you like what I said, Alexa, what do you think of the LA Lakers in trash talk? And then Dwayne Johnson comes on and says like some really, yeah, I shouldn't know it now, but I have to tell her to talk trash and it's just, it's hilarious. I'm sure like, you know, especially sports guys will love this. I've never done that, but I did waste money buying the Samuel Jackson voice on my Alexa that doesn't really do anything. So I just wasted 99 cents or whatever it was, but free. The the sports talk, I think is the sports trash talk is free. I'll go upstairs after this and talk to it while everybody's in bed. Yeah. She (laughs) says some funny things. I mean, she said some funny things when I asked her some questions about Michael Jordan and yeah, it's funny. Wow. All right, man crush. You jump out to the lead heading into the final movies round. Let's see if you can hold on to that lead. Well, since I won that round, I'm going into the last and Mike didn't really get talked about at all last round. I'm going to let Mike go first. <laughs> I'm going to def- I'm going to defer. Well, look at that. And I'm, and I'm just going to give you the gift that's going to keep on giving <laughs> all year long because on August 21st, 1992, we saw the release of the notoriously hilarious comedy The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag, directed by Alan Moyle and starring Penelope Ann Miller as Betty Lou, a small-town librarian who finds a murder weapon and confesses to a crime she didn't commit to get attention, because she was nobody until they found the gun in Betty Lou's Handbag. The film was panned by critics and grossed $3.7 million against an estimated $13 million budget. So this movie sucks, but more importantly, I was watching the trailer for this thing and it dawns on me that Penelope Ann Miller plays Brenda in Adventures in Babysitting, which is a total fucking mind blow because I love that movie. I don't think I ever saw that. And I see what, Adventures in Babysitting? Wait, no, no, no. I've seen that. I'm confused. Wait, wasn't Adventures in Babysitting Elizabeth Shue? Yes, but Penelope Ann Miller plays Brenda in that movie, who's her best friend, who's stuck in the bus station, loses her glasses, hilarity ensues. It's awesome. Keith Coogan gets stabbed in the foot, gets one stitch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One stitch. I like her. I like her as an actress. I think she's good. I like like a lot of her stuff. She's been in a couple of really good things. Yeah, she's in Carlito's Way. She's in Freshman. She's in a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah. And what's funny about this one is I really, I remember this movie. Like I remember the trailers before things I would rent. Like it seemed to be like kind of that movie that I, you always kind of saw or heard about, but you didn't actually watch. Right. You know, so. Well, the, the concept of it sounds good. They could do so much more with it now. It sounds like, you know, like I, I see it now, like a lot of visual effects and I see it more magical when you like gave me the log line. I got all sorts of other images with it, but I can imagine if it's not, you know, I can imagine it could also The trailer actually look, like, I want to see it after watching the trailer again. So I actually am going to, like, order a copy off Amazon. But, um, (laughs) yeah, The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag. Just another fantastic pick from what's been a fantastic evening for me. (laughs) 
Mike, Mike and I have an awful problem where if we talk about a movie, we have to buy it. Or if somebody else in the episode talks about the movie, then we have to buy it. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like you know, hey, maybe you guys could do some remakes here. You're like stirring up some like imaginations here. But we have talked about a prequel to Over the Top that's come up quite a bit. <laughs> There's so much that has to be explained. How did he get into arm wrestling? When did it start? Oh, I don't even know. Over the top? Is that what Sylvester Stallone? Yes, yeah, the is. arm wrestling movie. Okay, yeah. I kind of That's guess. what 2020 needs now. We need more arm wrestling movies. Yeah. Well, you can, you know, you can pretend to arm wrestle over Zoom, right? Good. <laughs> I'm sure there's an app. The nope. that you could probably do. Look at my hand in the camera. Nobody <laughs> probably even arm wrestles anymore. They just use a, an app on their phone to do it. Right. Yeah. We need to bring back the real deal. And we'll bring back this prequel. But you did mention, like, redoing the movie. So I wanted to ask since you, you guys have both been in movies for so long. Uh, Keith Coogan explained this whole thing uh, about three or four weeks ago, how the studios redo everything every 35 years. Otherwise they lose the rights to the writers. And what do you guys know about that? Because now there's more, you know, what was that one with uh, Will Smith that's coming out? Will Smith and planes, trains and automobiles with Will Smith and Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart. Okay. And uh, the people in our Facebook group, if you guys aren't there yet, uh, www.facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. There's over 11,000 people in the group, over wow. 50,000 people on the page. So, uh, to listeners out there, if you're not there, go there. But, uh, a lot of people have brought that particular remake up and it's been bad. <laughs> like the comments, people just don't want it. What are your thoughts about remaking which, movies? About which movie? Over the just top? any oh, movie okay. in general, like oh. just any like 80s. I, I, that's interesting that Keith Coogan said that about. I see. I thought they did remakes just because they're they're you know they don't have much imaginations on the studio level a lot of times. That's what we thought. Um, you know, but there is truth to that. But I thought it was every 50 years or every 70 years. I mean, with the something going into the public domain, it's easy for them to like relicense. Though all they have to do is like take the the product and relicense it out on a DVD or like remaster it. And then they can still maintain the copyrights with the Library of Congress. So that's not exactly accurate. What Keith said, maybe there's truth to it. I don't know. I mean, that he's touching on something that could be true because you can lose it into the public domain, but not after 35 years, after 50 years or 70 years. It's a lot longer than that. I mean, every single, like a book is different than music is different than a movie. But yeah, you do have to he, he is right. I mean, otherwise you could lose the right. There is a, there's a tremendous amount of old films and things like that in the public domain now, which is always fascinating to look at and see what you can, you know, bring some life to. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of classics that just really shouldn't be touched. It just, uh, and there's some brilliant movies out there that just, it's not so much the story that makes them great. It's the people that are in them that make them great. Like these right, the chemistry, the chemistry. And there's so many different, there's so much stuff. There's just, it's, it's alchemy that goes into making a movie. There's just so many things that you try to recreate in a sequel or another one, or like a remake. It doesn't always happen. Occasionally you can see something that actually gets better, but you can't focus on the past. You have to really focus on the present and finding like what's happening right in the present. But a lot of times I feel that people try to bring in what happened in the past and they're not in present time. And because you're not in present time, the magic doesn't happen. Well, that is a really, that's a really good point. Um, I, I have to say that one of the reasons I think they are brought back is because when audiences saw it and they were a kid or they were a teen, it brought back such strong memories that if they bring it back 35 years later, 
they know that they have the audience interest because they saw it when they were a kid. And they're going to go, oh my gosh, I loved that movie when I was a kid. I'm going to watch it again. Uh, whether it is what it was when they were younger isn't the point. The point is that people will go see it because it was something that they saw when they were younger. I think a lot of sometimes people who produce things, they're not looking at what made it great originally and then like like bringing back some princesses. I don't know. Diane, <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. It, uh, you're hilarious, Diane. And it would bring back those memories. I think that that's really the the thing that would make that if they got that, that would be great. But well, let's just, let's throw this out there. What movie has ever been remade that you guys thought was better than the original? Mm. Scarface. The thing. The thing. John Carpenter's the thing. And I actually like the original a lot, but I think you, you like the remake of the thing. John Carpenter's The Thing is a remake. Oh, okay. I yeah. thought you were talking about the remake yeah. that they did in the 2000s. Yeah, no. And you, yeah. Said, oh, you yeah. said Scarface, but Scarface was the one that was done in the 30s or 40s, right? Right. Right. And I like the remake better. Yeah, I don't even know that they remade that. A lot of people probably don't. I'm talking about probably movies in the last 50 years that have oh, been remade. None. Little Shop of Horrors? Way better with Rick Moranis than Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, that's a good one. I can't think of any modern reboots, though, that I would watch. No. That I actually enjoyed. I like the remake of Judge Dredd. Yeah, so really? you're the one. Yeah. Well, dude, <laughs> uh, don't sit here and tell me that everybody likes the original Judge Dredd. Cause that it's goofy, true. but it's it's Judge Dredd. Like, the other one, I, it's good. But I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think Carl Urban killed it in that movie. I think it was kind of dry. I'm hoping for Bill and Ted's to be better. But I don't think <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a sequel. That's not really. I'm just. I'm talking about movies that have been remade. Talking about movies that have been remade, and somebody comes with a really creative. The thing is, a lot of people that are have a lot of creative visions are. A lot of times, they don't like to do remakes. Like, you know, the Steven Soderbergs or the. Um, a lot of these like inventive directors. Um, they just, they take their own material. They do something new and fresh because you have to, Quentin, you do something new and fresh because you have to spend so many years on it. And so they don't want to be compared to something in the past. Like, like the, it seems like the really brilliant guys, unless you get hired by the studio as a remake and they pay you a ton of money. It's just, you know, what are you churning out? And you have to really just ask yourself creatively, how can I make this my own unique vision and make this better? Well, how about if I just use my own material? Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of times where I think that they would go to is, I, I mean, just, I'm just thinking on my feet here. I don't really know, but that's just what. Yeah, but that's true. That's really true. Yeah. I mean, look, you're always going to compare them and that, you know, once you get invested into doing a film, the comparison is inevitable, you know, and yeah, it's hard. It's like, it's a lot of pressure for the filmmaker. I wouldn't want to have that. It's like, I'm going to remake this great piece of work or as an actor or every aspect of it, the editor. I mean, and look at how beautifully shot some of these movies were in the seventies. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Trying to like redo yeah. that. It's like they're lit beautifully. They're shot on film and you just really can't recapture that beauty with HD for the most part. I mean, my opinion, but yeah. A lot of people wanted to do, um, uh, I know for a while, um, Brett Ratner wanted to do uh, the last American Virgin again, you know, and a lot of people who had, mixed feelings about it that you know they were like you can't do it you even bring his name up right now i want to strangle you in the screen i'm strangling diane for bringing that guy's name up <laughs> yep yeah zip so. zip zip i'm stitching your mouth up with a threading needle right now yep stitching your mouth up it's but that's kind of world yeah that's gotta suck though like if you have a movie that was a hit 
how how would it feel if they did remake Last American Virgin with a different actress and everything else, and you went and you watched it and you didn't like it? How would you feel about that afterwards? I think that I have thought about if, if they did a remake of it. Um, I think the good the good part about it for me would have been that that story continues. The story doesn't change, but is for a new audience, you know, and I would, I, my thought was it would have been like with the texting and the technology, you know, we'd, we'd introduce all that to the, the, the new generation with a lot of the technology. Um, but the, but the core story stays the same. So that I think would been, have been very interesting. Um, and then other than that, you know, uh, it, it wouldn't matter because I think again, you know, it, it, the, what happens in the past and the, the films that are the, the older films will always be beloved to the audiences that watch them when they were growing up. So I guess I think technology ruins that stuff though. When you look at old eighties movies, we didn't have cell phones, you know, you were going to pay phones, like communication wasn't instantaneous. Yeah. When you go and you add that movie, like planes, trains and automobiles. How can you make that in 2020? Yeah, you can right. pick up a damn cell phone it's so right. It's like, that's what I deal with all the time with working on scripts and working with writers and even things that I'm creating is everything is solved with a smartphone. You know, it's like, you have a question, you have this, you're stuck somewhere. The only thing you do is be stuck in the middle of nowhere and you have no reception, which still occurs or your right. phone dies um, there because you always have to have that sense of urgency to make it real. Like right. any planes, automobiles and you have, it, you take that away. And it's like, it will be interesting to see how they give a sense of urgency. I, and that's why I, um throwback shows like stranger things where it's kind of 80s where you don't quite know exactly where it's at what time it is you feel like it is the 80s that's why those shows are fun to work on and that's i have a, even a, a script i'm working on right now it's it's sort of paying homage to the 80s type vibe and then we have some of the characters like with old flip phones because of the, the storyline of the of the movie but it's it is so challenging to like deal with uh, technology because it just it really solves a lot of problems that you face up against in, um, you know, in a TV uh, in a movie or TV show type thing. I did see, yeah. I did see a cold case um, show where a girl was trying to call nine one one with her cell phone, and all she got on the phone was nine one. She couldn't get nine one one out. And I thought that would make a great title, by the way, for a horror film is 9-1. Oh, yeah. You can't quite get 911 out because somebody, you know, takes you before you can get the 911 out. Oh, so so that is kind of like something I just came up with like recently, just like watching that. But anyway, I just thought that it is so true with like technology. Um, everything is solved. Unless somebody's just like out and gets you and grabs you, like what happened to this girl? Somebody's just, you know, just that's like a real horror that actually happened. Um, but that's what you have to put into a script or a movie is something like that happening where you are ripped away from your cell phone or you're ripped away from it and you just, you know, right. You have to escape. That's a good horror film. That's a good, like, you know, let's in danger film, danger in the woods. She has to escape and get away. Cause my girl would not die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I love derailing the last round. So go ahead, Mark. I'm sorry for, uh, derailing your choice <laughs> not at all because we talk about remakes and we've talked about movies from the 70s so this fits right in because this is a movie from the 70s that i hope they never remake because it's just a classic now this movie came out august 25th 1972 now it's a familiar story about an african prince named mama walde who travels abroad not to seek a wife 
but to seek Count Dracula to have him help him stop the slave trade. Now, unfortunately, Mama Walde gets turned on by Count Dracula and turned into a vampire and renamed Blackula. So I give you the classic black exploitation film, Blackula, from 1972. My gosh. Now, 200 years later, a pair of interior decorators find the coffin of Blackula and transport it to Los Angeles, where he awakens with an unquenchable thirst for human blood, of course. Now, if you guys are interior decorators and you happen to buy a coffin to decorate in your home, wouldn't you check to see if there's a dead body inside? And wouldn't you notice that, wow, this seems a little heavy for its size? And you'd look, but they never look at what's in the coffin until they get it back to Los Angeles, open it up, and of course, Blackula comes back. So just an absolute cult classic. Uh, you can catch it online now. It still holds up. No, 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 it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it does not hold up whatsoever, but it's a great time. It, it's fun. You know, take yourself out of present day, put yourself back into the time period of 1972, and just enjoy some Blackula. It's all good fun. Mike, oh remember when we went to go see that in 35mm? Uh, yeah, I was going to just say that, man. Like, It was cool to see it in 35mm, in but man, so beat up. to sleep. Yeah, it's not a fast-paced movie whatsoever. Uh, and that was one of the things with like 70s films, you know. A lot of those horror movies, was it was a slow, quiet burn. But, uh, Who's was, was the actor in it? The actor in it was actually, it was uh, William Marshall played Blackula himself. Uh, in the sequel, we got Pam Greer in the sequel and a few other known actors, but this is the original Blackula that came out August 25th, 1972. Wow. And when I say ours was beat up, I mean, the print was beat up. It was yeah. beat up to shit. And we missed like half the movie because it was so like tore up. But anyhow. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't miss much. That was a long day, man. That was like 15 hours. It's like we're getting down into the worms. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, why don't you wrap up this game, see if you can hold on to the lead. What do you have for the final round, the movies round? All right, so let's go to August 23rd, 1985. So when we pick dates for this show, we do a couple things to make sure that we're not overlapping with old episodes. After we check that, we make sure that we're using a date that hasn't been used in the last like six to eight weeks. So needless to say, it's pretty random selections. Then we just, when we decide on a date, then we decide what we're going to do, like week experience, best of, worst of, genre-based, et cetera, et cetera. So when we land on a pick like this one, it's purely by chance. It's serendipitous. This movie right here, it's a staple of my collection. I probably watch it every couple months. I actually have the poster right outside this the dungeon studio here. And while it was not a box office juggernaut, it does have better staying power than some of the top movies of its time. And as we talked about last week with Richard, sometimes numbers do not tell the entire story. And in this case, there were juggernauts this week that this movie had to compete with. You had Back to the Future that was number one at the box office. You had Return of the Living Dead. You had Ghostbusters. Serious competition at the box office. I'd say this movie challenges the popularity of those movies now but it also blows away the other top box office movies of that time during that week. Volunteers, this movie kills. You're the Dragon, this movie kills. Summer Rental, I'd say it kills. And then I would give it the nod over Teen Wolf, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Cocoon, and European Vacation. All wow. those movies. 
Yeah. Summer of 19 and summer of 1985. It's probably one of the best movie seasons in history. And we can add this movie to that list. All right. So this movie, it brought in just about $10 million at the box office, which is about $25 million in 2020. But the aftermarket and cable, like the cable networks, they just completely cemented this movie in cinematic history. So if you're a fan of skiing, ruthless paper boys, jackets made of pure aardvark, gelatinous mashed potatoes, snorting jello, international languages of love, Van Halen hamburgers, blowing up your neighbor's mother, throwing away perfectly good white boys, attending high school for seven and a half years, John Cusack, Curtis Armstrong, and Diane Franklin. Then the Savage Steve Holland classic, Better Off Dead, is right in your wheelhouse. So uh, released August 23rd, 1985, Better Off Dead. Oh, gosh, you made this so difficult. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I am Jeez. My mouth is dropped open. I am <laughs> I'm friends with Savage Steve and another person in the movie <laughs> will remain nameless. Hi, Diane. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh. Wow. I know that movie. That's how I knew Diane. That's how I was like super excited to like be in a movie with Diane for Bill and Ted. I was like, oh my God, I'm in with this girl. I just was so excited because I love that movie. So yes, well, that's <laughs> Man Crush. Uh, yes, Man I, I love the details that you plugged. There were so many things I didn't know about it. And I, I'm so honored that you have a poster outside your mansion. Oh, yeah. It's right out over there. It is. By, yeah. the, way, what, by the way, what studio released that movie? Uh, it was Warner Brothers. CBS, well, CBS, Warner Brothers. I don't know if it's the same thing, but yeah, together. Um, yeah. And it was, um, I remember the coolest thing I was, when it came out, they put it on the big Warner brothers, you know, like they have a, the billboards. building has those big posters outside those big bill- billboards outside. Yeah. And they did, yeah, they, they paint your picture up there. Yeah. I was like phenomenal. I was like, I was driving by and they were in the middle of painting it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it was crazy. That's so cool. Yes. Oh my gosh, man, Chris, you are a doll. Thank you so much for finding that. Well, go on. Tell me more details. You, all right. So this is who you're you competing with more. that week. More. Tell me more about All right. So the top 10, one week after you've already been in the box office, you guys were not in the top 10, nope. right, but this is the top 10. Back to the future. Still. Wow. Teen Wolf at number two. Pee Wee's Big Adventure was at three. You had Volunteers at four. Five was Year of the Dragon. Six was Return of the Living Dead. Seven was Summer Rental. Then Ghostbusters is still there at eight. Then you had National Lampoon's European Vacation. And 10 was Cocoon to round out everything else. Oh, my gosh. What a bunch of great movies. Yeah. Weird Science was there, too. True Genius was there. And they weren't even in the top 10 either. No Hot Chili on that list? Hot Chili did not make it. But American Ninja (laughs) came out the next week. If we're talking about canon films. Wow. That's hilarious. That is phenomenal. That's amazing. And yeah, that film still holds up. Absolutely. I think it does. I mean, I, I mean, I hope it does. I'm, I'm writing a book about it now. So I hope that people will, uh, you know, check in and uh, check in with me. You know, I'm, I'm trying to get it done before the end of the year. Um, so for- I would love to go to, I'd love to go to a drive-in movie theater and see oh. all the movies that you just listed. Wouldn't that be fun? Well, not, not in one night, obviously, but I would love it. If I could- <laughs> you know, I would love it if they had like all those movies um, at a drive-in and we could just, cause those are, those are fun movies. Yeah. Back to the Future. I haven't seen that in so long. Yeah. And, and Cocoon, that's a wonderful movie. And just, I don't remember Year of the Dragon. And Better Off yeah. Dead on the big screen. That would be amazing. Better Off Dead would be so much and fun. And Drive-In. It's really fun. 
I love drive-ins. Oh my gosh, what great memories. That's You guys that's, don't have drive-ins by LA? You'd think no, we'd have a lot of them. No, because the real estate's so expensive, you know? It's like a lot of property to take up for a drive-in here. No shit. The- but I think, that, I think there's some probably down in Orange County area. Okay, not as much as there should be. I mean, we're out I, of- I heard, I, heard, well. I heard somebody's bringing them back. Recently, one of my friends told me that somebody's bringing back more drive-in movies. I hope Because so. the whole COVID thing, it's a lot safer, obviously. Oh, yeah. We just went this past Friday. Well- Thanks. I'm going to just have to say man crush crushed it. Crushed it. <laughs> crush. You were in the movie. So I buckets, man. It's very nice. I'll, see. I'll be the second vote for that movie. Cause I love that movie. I love Diane in it. And I love Savage Steve Holland. I have met John Cusack. Who's a really cool guy. So yes, I have to say definitely that movie. You guys all did really great though. Mark, Mike, you guys really presented well. <laughs> Um, Mark, I still think about your first story, the news story with the whole thing with the bank robber. That is so incredible. That was based off of a true story. Yeah. Isn't this interesting? It's, there, it's just fascinating, the stuff they come up with and the, uh, the details. Brilliant work, brilliant research, you guys. You guys should write some movies or screenplays. I'm sure afterwards you're going to be... <laughs> how, long, how many years have you guys been doing this show? Uh, two. Two. It's been okay. like two years. So like, after year five, I expect you guys to like start producing or writing movies or both. Well, we just we just switched over to uh, to Sounder.fm as our new host for our podcast, and they transcribe everything. So hopefully we oh, can pull awesome. those transcriptions and we can get ideas from those. That would be awesome. I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah, but what do you think of that idea for a horror film, 9-1? You need the dash in there. So it nine looks like, it's like one, 9 right? Yeah, right. because it's like it just and you just have like the the cover is just like it's just this, the phone with just like the nine one, but it's like not the full thing. But right. it gets the concept. Let me right? ask you guys this: Why do they not do? Because they're always successful when they do it. Why mm-hmm. are there not more eighties? Like they have time pieces and they do time period pieces from the eighteen hundreds and the forties and the fifty, but nobody does like any eighties stuff. There's like a couple here and there. Why don't they do more of those? Because we'd watch the hell out of those. We do when every time they offer it. I, I only go I do eighties with Sam. That's what I do. So wait wait a second. What are you what are you talking about? You're talking about remaking eighties movies? No, 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 no. I mean like put make a movie brand uh-huh. new, but set it just like Stranger Things. Put it in the eighties. Give me a movie that sets place in nineteen eighty six or nineteen eighty nine or nineteen eighty three. Like right there. But nobody does that. Like they they go forward. Why. They skip That's the whole nineties. You know what's weird? I actually did an art film that actually, I mean, art, it's like a thriller that took place in the 80s. And it's not been, it's just being released now as like a special release, uh, like a special, um, like they're just putting it out now. But it is bizarre. And that's why I got hired for it, because it took place in the 80s. So it is kind of unusual. You're right. It wasn't, it's not common. Yeah, I don't, that's a good question. I don't really read many screenplays that take place in the 80s. I don't get it. We we had the guys on from summer of 84. It was this horror movie that was very gritty. And these guys did their research. They everything in the movie down to like the G.I. Joe walkie talkies. And they did a fantastic job. And it was an indie movie. And it was great. And I haven't seen anything else mm-hmm. come out. Yeah, that's weird. I, I did a I produced a horror film called Babysitter Wanted. But we made it in like 2007 and 2008 and people watched it and they thought that it was supposed to be set in the 1980s because the car was really old and things were like out in the middle of nowhere. And because it was an old house and an old car, people thought, oh, you're trying to make a 1980s 
like kind of Carrie type, you know, throwback to Carrie, but it wasn't really, I mean, cause we did make it in 2007. It's just that it could have been anywhere USA, anytime USA, right. almost, which I also like doing that. I don't like to put a time on movies if you can get away with it. Yeah. Horror films, you can do that with, like, especially if you kind of make these horror films like out in the middle of the woods where it could be a tent, any tent, right. it could be a tent from the eighties or it could be a tent right. from now. Right. And you got a Coleman stove. Well, that could be any time. And you got the scary guy. So those kind of movies, I, I like the timeless element of things as well. But yeah, the eighties films, eighties films actually do that, but it's always one thing that gives it away, which is technology, which you guys talked about. It's technology that gives away the era and everything. Yeah. yeah you go to pick up the phone and you're done. Yeah. <laughs> what phone do you pick end, up? End of the movie. Oh, you're, you're here to kill me. Hold on. No phone reception. Your parents have like banned you from the phone. That's why you don't have it because you abused it or um, you lost, your battery went dead. There are apps where you can like block signal for a small area. So that's oh, another Oh, yeah, that's good. Like, if you have a really good bad guy, he could do that. Like a techie yeah. bad guy, he could right. ban it. He could ban the whole town, the small town. If you get rid of the elect, no, you're right. Even if you get rid of electricity, your phone is still going to work. So, yeah. <laughs> it's so shitty. Like, just go back. Right. Just do it. Set it in the 80s or the 90s, and we're good. Yeah. Have people give people beepers. Well, it's, here's here's the thing: is it's only going to get more sophisticated. It's only going to get more challenging. <laughs> yep, that's so true. But thank you very much for uh, for giving me the victory on that. Yeah, you guys, that was a lot of fun. That was so fun, and you guys are wonderful, amazing. Well, thank you again, once again. Great uh, facts and great stories. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's fun to it's fun to like walk down memory lane like this, and it, it like it's it's good. It's creative. I, I really enjoyed it. And Diane, always so good to see you. I love you, sister. You're lovely. We we have these great adventures together. So this is another adventure, and I hope the audience appreciates it and likes it because it's it's really fun for both of us. Are yeah. you guys gonna watch the movie together? The oh, Ted's face, movie. Oh. We're gonna face the music. You know, I like to leave. <laughs> we're gonna face the music. <laughs> face it together yeah you know I, i'll play some queen and like start dancing it's like i've got to get myself psyched up to watch it um and then yeah i won't say anything but um <laughs> it's like i can like blab away but so are you like not excited that it's coming out though like you have to be a little bit excited i mean listen alex alex met with me back in 2010 about the movie he told me he's got a script i mean i really felt like alex wanted me to do this you know I was like I've been close with Alex for so many years I love him I mean he's just he's a genuine like wonderful guy um but and Diane and I you know it's we got close and we did some we did some events together with Alex and with uh even Ed I, I think Ed or Scott but anyway I don't know but I'm excited for them because I know how hard they worked on it and from a creative um and a producer and just a human perspective i'm so happy that they got it made and i know there's like so many fans that are excited and it does have such a great message especially for now with the whole be excellent to each other and it is it does remind people of like the fun part of their childhoods and so i i do love that they have that they have a new one coming out and it's it's a nice bookend i think to the to the first one do diane and i wish we could be part of it of course i mean who wouldn't want us to be but Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, there's a bit of melancholy there, but I'm, at the same time, there's a 80% of me is like really happy for them. So, yeah. 
So you're going to watch it together. So you guys, you guys can VOD watch it because I think it's coming out on both. I heard. Yeah, it is. VOD and in movies. It is. It's like coming out all the same day, day and date release, which is smart because that's how it should come out, especially a movie like that where people would probably pirate it anyway if they didn't have it like that. So it's like, you know, pirated like crazy with that. So it's, it's great that it's coming out that way so they can hopefully, um, you know, recoup a lot of their money and all that sort of business stuff, but also get a lot of people to watch it. I mean, honestly, I would just like beam it out for everybody to watch and have Bill and Ted sitting there watching it with the audience, with everybody. Like, you know, yeah, like people will buy it either way. Right. Oh yeah, people are going to love it. I mean, I would go to the movies and see it if it came out non-COVID times. I hope that they read I would love to see it in the drive-in. That would be fun. Oh my gosh, that'd be fun. It'd be fun to see all three of them. Three, yep. you know, all three of them together. I'm sure somebody's going to do it. Somebody, some drive-in, especially over here, we go to Mahaning all the time, which is like two hours away, even though we have closer ones. But that one, there's just something about it with a 35 millimeter and how they do everything there. And it's so historic. So that's why we go that oh, way. Oh, I love that. I th- That sounds so great. I wish I could do that right now. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but thanks again. If, and if you guys have anything you want to plug right now, like, go ahead. The floor is yours. No, I, I'm not plugging anything. I'm just plugging away at like my shows that I'm creating right now. And Diane and I, I will say that Diane and I have created something that we're going to be probably announcing in the next couple of months. Um, there's no rush on it, but something that we've created together that we hope um, will appeal to a lot of people. Um, yeah, it has a lot of possibilities. It's more than just a movie, which is great. Excellent. Awesome. No hints. Bill and Ted says United uh, Kim and I in a very wonderful way, in the most excellent I, I didn't, I did watch, I, yeah, it has united us and it has like, it given me a lot of concepts and like, you know, it's, it's always, I think everything that happens in your life, it challenges, challenges a person to look at like, okay, um, that happened. And so how am I going to deal with this? And it, it, it's challenging. And I, I was watching Cinderella the other night, the remake with my favorite Lily James, who was so gorgeous in the remake of Cinderella. I don't know if you guys saw that. I didn't. I, I missed that. I've never one. seen any Cinderella. I'm, oh I'm my gosh. I know. I'm sorry. I talked <laughs> to you guys. Anyway, it's really well done, but I thought that I, I related to Cinderella not being able to go to the ball. That's all I can say. You mm. know, when she was like the evil stepmother, like forbid her from going to the ball. And I think that's how Diane and I kind of felt in this scenario. It was like, Oh, we can't go to the ball. We weren't yeah. invited. So. Well, gets back to those cinders, okay? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll, I'll... All right, you guys. Well, it was great to talk to you and um, fun show. Yeah. yeah. Thank you thank so you much for much. coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you and thank hope you. everyone loves it and we love you guys. And <laughs> Yes, and, and, and watch Bill and Ted 3 and um, watch them all. Yes, watch, watch them all. Watch Bill and Ted 3. All right. I mean, ta-ta. <laughs> Take care. Stay safe. All right. Bye. Thanks, you guys. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, duelers. Well, I guess we'll end this episode right here. But in the meantime, you can head over to DuelingDecades.com if you've missed a past episode. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. Now, duelers, keep in mind, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, on Friday, we're going to be having our live trivia night. If you want to check that out, head over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades and you can pre-register and subscribe. Now we're capping the trivia at 100 people. So spaces are filling up fast. So if there's any spots available, head over to our Facebook page. You'll find the links where you can register for that. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. 
Infirmary Media.